Hebrews 12. We've looked at the first couple of verses. We've considered this great company of witnesses, those who have gone before and who have a testimony of God's approval. And as we come down in these verses, verse 2 tells us that we are to keep our focus on the Lord. As we run this race, we are to be looking at Jesus. He is our guide. He is the example. He is the one who has run the race before us. He is the one who has finished the faith. And there is nothing that we can add to it. But we are to be looking to Him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now, of course, set down in glory. He has been glorified. He is set down at the right hand of God, on the throne of God. And then he says this, as we're looking to Jesus, verse 3 says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And as I said, we're not going to exhaust everything in these verses. We'll be here for a couple of weeks. But I want us to talk today about this suffering. Suffering. Jesus suffered. He suffered much on this earth. In fact, in Hebrews earlier, it says that God has made the captain of our salvation perfect or completed through suffering. And of course, Hebrew is, writ- is written to these believers, Hebrew believers, and the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage them because they indeed are suffering. As we noted there at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> in verse 32, the writer here says, But call to remembrance the former days, in the which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while she became a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. They were being persecuted. Persecuted because of their faith, and persecuted because of their associations with people of like faith. And then he describes briefly some of the persecutions that they had endured. It wasn't just made a gazing stock or a spectacle. I'm sure they were verbally abused but they'd even lost some of their possessions. It says, For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Heaven is going to be a great place. Nothing will wear out. I won't need a dryer or a washer in heaven, but if I did, it wouldn't wear out, right? But there, there it is an enduring, a better and an enduring substance. And so he tells them in verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience. You have need of endurance. That after you have received, after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Endurance. Endurance is necessary to run the race. And this is what he's talking about in chapter 12. We are looking unto Jesus. He is the author, the finisher of our faith. But we are to consider his suffering. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. You know, in, in, in Scripture, I note at least three basic types of suffering. I'm sure there's, there, there may be more, but I think we can probably categorize them in three distinct categories. The first type of suffering I can think of is a suffering as a result of sin. Sometimes we sin and we suffer the consequences of our sin. You know, in, in Scripture, there are, I mean examples on every page, almost, it seems like. There are examples throughout Scripture of suffering as a result of sin. In 2 Samuel 
chapter 12 in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12, David, or it's recorded there of David, some of his suffering that he endured because of his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet comes, and in verse 9, gives the word of the Lord to David, and he says, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, hast taken his wife to be thy wife, thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me. This is God speaking. And hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son." For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Consequences. And boy, did David suffer. And you look at David's family and the tragedies in his lives of his children, and then the rebellion there of Absalom, and all of that being fulfilled, which was spoken by Nathan the prophet. Suffering as a result of sin. Psalm 38. In Psalm 38, David also recounts the heavy burden of his sin. Just the first several verses, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thine hot displeasure, for thine arrows stick fast in me. They pierce me deeply. Thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head. There's the the picture of a person drowning, just the waters coming over their head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken, I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Verse 11, my lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, my kinsmen stand afar off. Here's this whole chapter speaking there, David talking about the results, the suffering that he endured on account of his own transgression. There's suffering as a result of sin. Of course, this... David even said um, that he rejoiced in the chastening hand of the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? How are we to respond when we suffer for our own errors, our own sins? Well, we should take it patiently. Of course, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and verse 11 speaks about the chastening hand of the Lord. Now, we're not quite there yet in our, um, in our study here in Hebrews. But there is suffering as a result of sin. There are consequences. That's one of the types of suffering I see in Scripture. However, there is also suffering for the exact opposite reason. There is what the Bible describes as suffering for righteousness, suffering for doing that which is pleasing to the Lord. Of course, you can think of through the Old Testament, the prophets, and how many prophets got off without suffering persecution. I don't think you can name hardly any. 
They all suffered great persecution. Many were killed, slain by the kings that they were sent to minister to. But there were the prophets proclaiming the word of the Lord. And oftentimes, oftentimes those who heard did not appreciate the message and afflicted the messenger. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of his own suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Paul says this. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. And that right there alludes to the Roman law of scourging. They were not allowed to give 40 stripes. It could be, or they were only allowed to give, actually only allowed to give 40 stripes, no more. And so they would subtract one because if you gave a prisoner more than 40 stripes, then you received the same affliction. And so rather than give over 40, they would subtract one and only give 39. I'm sure... By that time, you were probably in shock or numb. But here, Paul received this type of a beating five times from his fellow countrymen, the Jews, not even from the Romans, but from the Jews. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Remember that time he was left out, they cast him out of the city. They thought he was dead. They stoned him, but then he got up, and God miraculously spared his life. Thrice have I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my known countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without." That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul had a lot on him. He suffered much. And you know what? He could have done away with all of that. He could have escaped all that suffering if he'd have just quit preaching the gospel. But he didn't. He persevered. And he suffered for righteousness. And of course, what is the proper response? Well, James, James chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 10 and 11. James says this. He says, Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience or endurance. If you want an example... Want some inspiration? Look at the prophets. He says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Of course, Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, spoke of suffering for righteousness' sake. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are ye they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Again, a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Of course, who have we just been talking about in Hebrews chapter 11? These people who walked by faith. Those who by faith suffered, were tortured, not accepting deliverance. You want to be encouraged, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You want to be encouraged, read some of Josephus, some of those old saints who suffered greatly for the things of the Lord, for righteousness. 
There is suffering for righteousness. Suffering as a result of sin. And then thirdly, suffering, and this is not this this might be a subtitle, I suppose, under suffering for righteousness, but suffering for the glory of God. Suffering for the glory of God. And you say, how would that be different than suffering for righteousness? Well, like I said, it's very similar. However, there are two examples in Scripture that I'd like to draw your attention to. One was just mentioned by James. It takes us back to that Old Testament character, Job. Job. You go back and you read the book of Job. And here's Job, a man living in his day. He fears God. He has been blessed abundantly. Has a number of children. He's got flocks and herds. He's very successful. And then all of a sudden, it all vanishes in dramatic fashion. Dramatic fashion. It says Job chapter 1, it begins. Job chapter 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. Doesn't mean he never sinned, but he was blameless. His reputation was that of a righteous man. Perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. He loved righteousness, and he hated unrighteousness. He loved God. He hated sin. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Wow. Obviously a homeschooler. Here he was. And his substance was very great. What did he have? Well, he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 sheasses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Who was this man? Successful. Things were going great. Ten kids overseeing his vast estate. Well, unbeknownst to Job, there was a conference going on in heaven. In verse 6, it was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Where are you coming from? Where have you been? Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, From walking to and fro and going up and down in the earth. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's quite a guy isn't he? Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth? That is an amazing statement. And the fact is that God is mentioning this to Satan. Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Nobody like him in all the earth perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And what does Satan say? He says, well, why do you think he fears you and eschews evil? He's rich. He's successful. Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in his hand, in the land. You haven't let anything, nothing ever has gone wrong for Job. He's got it easy. Why do you think he likes you? But you put forth your hand. Touch all that he hath, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said unto Satan, All right, behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself, but not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. What do you think Satan's going to do? 
What do you think Satan's going to do? Satan is a what? He, the Bible says he is a destroyer. Satan has never created anything. He perverts and destroys that which God has created. Never forget that. Satan didn't invent music. Satan perverted God's gift of music. Satan perverts and destroys everything he touches. And what did he do? Well, you see what he does. By the end of the chapter, all of Job's children are dead. All of his cattle have been stolen or been killed. They're gone. And there's only like two servants left. One that escaped from the party the kids were having. The other that escaped from the animals that were confiscated. And then Job arose at the end of the chapter and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. That is amazing. You put yourself in Job's shoes and your children all gone in a moment. What did Job do? Worshipped. Verse 21, he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job looked and said, you know what? <clears throat> I came into this world with nothing. And I cannot take anything out of this world. God is the one who gives. God is the one who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was no man in the earth like Job. What an example. But folks, it doesn't even end there. The next chapter, there's another day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord the same way he did in the first chapter, and said, Well, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord says the same thing to Satan that he said in the first time. He goes, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth. A perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. In all that you have done, look. And actually, he says, thou movest me to destroy him without cause. God is the one who permitted it. And God's accounting of Job's testimony was exactly the same as it was before this even started. And Satan says, well, God lets up the ante. Skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life, but put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Wow. And then we see God allow Job to go through some of the most horrendous suffering recorded in Scripture. It's one thing to suffer physically. It's another thing to suffer vicariously. And what I mean by that is Job suffered 
mentally and vicariously when he saw the loss of all of his children and everything he'd worked for. Then God allowed Satan to touch his body. And Job suffered greatly. And by the end of chapter 2, and this is a book that's 40, 41, 40 chapters long. By the end of chapter 2, Job is, it's, it's 42 chapters long. Job has lost everything. He's lost his health. And even his wife is questioning his loyalty and his endurance to God. His wife says unto him in verse 9 of chapter 2, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? You still staying loyal to your God? Why don't you just curse God and die? But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. It says, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? What was Job saying? He goes, listen, God is in control. God is the one who blesses. God is the one who takes it away. I trust God with, that he knows what he's doing, whether it seems like it to me or not. In all this, did not Job sin with his lips? And then for the next 30-some chapters... He gets to listen to his friends who come and try and try their best to get Job to confess his sin. Because there's no way, there is absolutely no way that anything of this magnitude or of this nature could happen to anyone except that it be the consequences of some deep and grave iniquity. God's judgment has fallen. And Job hears from his friends for chapter after chapter, day in and day out, as they try and say, Job, come on, confess. There's got to be something. Job, this doesn't just happen. Out with it. What hidden, dark sin do you refuse to confess? And here was Job suffering. And guess what? I know this will not come as a surprise to you, but Job did not have the book of Job to read as he went through his trial. He was in the dark. He didn't know about that meeting in heaven. He did not know that God had used him as an example and that Satan was trying to destroy him. He didn't know that. He didn't know that at all. In fact, he didn't know that in fact, until the end of the book. And here Job suffered. The reason was, was not known to him. The cause was not known. But the end revealed the glory of God. And at the end of the chapter 42, the end of the book, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and a 1,000 yoke of auction, a 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And so here Job lived 140 years, saw his sons, his sons' sons, even four generations, and he died being old and full of days. Why did Job suffer? It's for the glory of God. Did Job suffer because he was sinful? No. In fact, the testimony that God gives of Job is unlike anyone else of his day. There was none like him on the earth. John chapter 9. We have the story of the man born blind. 
And here's this man. He was born this way, never seen the light of day. John chapter 9, as he passes by, he sees this man. Jesus passes by, sees a man that was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Well, Master, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? His, Jesus' disciples assumed what Job's, friend assumed, Job's friends assumed, and which, obviously, is a tendency for us to assume. Suffering? Must have done something bad. You must be suffering as a result of sin. But there is a suffering for the glory of God. And we see this here in chapter 9. Jesus answered his disciples and said, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. And he's not saying that they were sinless. But he was answering their question as to why he had been born blind. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, that he, would be, that he was born blind. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So Jesus told his disciples, this man was born blind so that God could work mightily in his life. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he thus spoke and he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way, therefore washed and came seeing. Why was this man born blind? He was born blind so that Jesus could heal him on that very day. And that was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, that this man would be born blind. Did that man know it? No, he did not. He had no idea why he had been born blind. He just knew that he couldn't see anything. The disciples, they thought it was because he had sinned. But it was suffering for the glory of God. Back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Verse 3, consider him that endured such contradiction against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. I would submit to you today that Jesus suffered all three types of of suffering. Now hear me out. You say, wait a minute. Jesus suffered as a result of sin? Yes, he did. Not his sin. My sin. Jesus suffered for righteousness. Yes, he did. Jesus suffered for the glory of God. Bible tells us that he suffered as a result of our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, Jesus, for he hath made him to be made sin for us, who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus suffered as a result of our sin. Isaiah 53 speaks is a prophecy there spoken by Isaiah how that he was going to be bruised and that God was going to be pleased at his suffering. He suffered as a result of our sin. But not only that, he suffered for righteousness, obviously. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 he suffered being tempted. And in that he is himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Chapter 2, verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, 
to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus suffered. He suffered as a result of my sin, as a result of your sin. Jesus suffered for righteousness. Think about his preaching and his ministry. He went about doing what? The Bible says he went about doing good. Teaching truth. Healing the sick. Raising the dead. Giving sight to the blind. Withered limbs restored to functionality. Feeding people who forgot their lunch. 5,000 plus at a time, 3,000 at another time. And in all of that, what happened? Of course, we know the story. But in all that he did, he went about doing good. And then in John, in chapter 8, how do these people talk to him? How could they speak this way? He goes, John chapter 8 and verse 40, you are seeking to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth, which I heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. Your parents weren't even married when you were born. Insults. Jesus said unto them, if, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself. He goes on, he says, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Which one of you, in verse 46, which one of you convinceth or convicteth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Therefore, he goes, you therefore hear them not because you are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? You're a half-breed. That was an insult, a racist epithet. You're a Samaritan and you have a devil. You're demon-possessed. There's no, that's, the only way you can do what you do is you're a devil. And they said that over and over to him, different occasions as you read through Scripture. You're casting out devils by the prince of devils. Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners. And that's just one example. Day in, day out, the Pharisees, and not only were they criticizing, they came and would listen to him with all the cleverness that they had, and they would ask him questions to try to make him slip up and make a statement that they could use against him. Of course, they never succeeded. Day in, day out, they did this. And then he'd heal someone. And how would they respond? You healed him on the Sabbath? Ah, you broke in the Sabbath. Never mind that the guy was up and walking. Never mind that he could see. Never mind that he was made whole completely. No, you did it on the wrong day. I mean, I think Jesus' favorite day to heal people was the Sabbath. I, almost every time he heals someone, Sabbath, you've worked. You're worthy of death. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Do you ever get tired? Do you ever get a little bit weary? Do you ever look around you and think, you know, I don't think I'm making any difference here. You know, I try to do right, and I get 
smacked down. I try to live a certain way and you know, the government just doesn't appreciate it. I mean, I read in scripture that the government is supposed to be punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do well. And it seems like it's turned on its head. Do you ever grow weary? And there's a tendency for us to faint in our minds. In the way we think. And where does the devil want to trip us up? In our minds. You know, serving God just isn't worth it, is it? Kind of costly. Why don't you just curse God and live it up? Yeah, I can see him talking to Job. Job? You still are being faithful to God? I mean, <laughs> look what he left you with. Nothing. We have a tendency to be weary. And why? Because the world is not a friend to grace. The world is not going to come along beside you, pat you on the back and say, you know, you're doing a good job, buddy. Keep it up. God is pleased with you. You're doing great. That's not the way the world responds, is it? Oh, no. They will not. They're going to look for every opportunity to make you stumble. They're going to test you. They want to watch and see what you do. And the dirty joke is said at work. Do you laugh? You ever have a curse word come out of your mouth? They're looking for it. No matter that every other word they utter is foul. You utter one, and they'll say, gotcha. You laugh at their jokes. You try to have a testimony, and they'll write you off. That's wearisome. Isn't it great that we can come together with people of like faith? like mind, people that encourage us in the things of the Lord. It's like churches when you come and you go, ah, oh, this is home. These are my, this is my family. These are my friends. We don't find that in the world. And we have a tendency to grow weary and to faint to fall down. Remember, he's talking about running a race. And the Bible says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We need endurance. We need endurance to run the race. We are running in a world that is heading in the opposite direction. Can you imagine running a, a marathon and everybody with numbers on their shirts are coming at you and you're going the opposite way? Hey, you're going the wrong way, bud. You know, I'm the only one going this direction. I, I hope I'm running this marathon right, you know? You, you, you kind of have a tendency to second-guess yourself. Am I, am I going in the right direction? Everybody else is going that way. That's the way it is, running in this world. Everybody else is heading in the opposite direction. They're heading to destruction. And Christians are called to go against the current, to go against the tide, to go against the flow. But in doing that, there's a tendency to become weary. There's a tendency to come, become faint in your mind, to wear down, to want to give up and just, oh, I just let go and go with the flow. It's so much easier. But just remember, where does the flow go? Consider its end. So the scripture says here, look unto Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. Listen, you think you're having it rough at work? Yeah, you're undergoing a little persecution. Just don't 
let it bother you. You just get right into the Word of God and read what Jesus dealt with, and you'll have a great day. It'll perk your day up because you're not going through anything that anything like he went through. In fact, he says here in verse 4, listen, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Yeah, they've made fun of you, name-calling, they're persecuting you, they're ostracizing you and because of your associations, and yes, you have had some of your goods stolen. You've experienced a loss, but you haven't yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Don't quit. Persevere. Have patience. Have endurance. Keep going and keep your eyes on Jesus. He has run the race. He has finished the course. And if you're feeling bad, you consider what he went through. Consider him that endured such opposition or contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Take you to one more passage. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? I want you to see it. How did Jesus handle the contradiction of sinners against himself? How did he handle all that? The Pharisees are after him. The Sadducees are after him. The, you know, it was an uphill battle. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning at verse 19... He says, Peter says, this is thankworthy, or this is commendable, this is good. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, what glory is it if he be buffeted for your own faults, you take it patiently. But if when you do well, or righteousness, and you suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable before God. Verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. You were called to suffer. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? The servant is not greater than his Lord. And in a nutshell, what he says is, listen, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Count on it. And don't be dismayed when it happens. I'm telling you this ahead of time. He says, For hereunto, even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. And how did he suffer? He suffered in such a way that there is a pattern for us to follow, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, Reviled not again. He didn't throw it back at him. When he suffered, he threatened not. You ever threaten someone? You ever feel like threatening someone that's giving you a hard time? Oh, yeah. You watch it, buddy. Well, let me tell you something. Somebody may persecute you, and you may turn around and threaten them. But you know what? You don't know whether you even got the stuff to defend yourself from that guy. Let me tell you something. Right here, when Jesus suffered, if he wanted to, he could have threatened. And believe me, if Jesus could threaten someone, he could carry it through. Remember what he said? I could call on my father, and he would send me 10,000 of angels to deliver me. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to suffer. I'm here to die. I could, I could threaten and I could go through with it. It says here, when he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? He committed himself unto him that judgeth righteously. What did Jesus do? He says, to his father, I am here to do your will. You are the one in charge. 
I am submitting to your will. And he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, think about that. What is righteous judgment? Righteous judgment is a fearful thing for sinful people. Because righteous judgment meets out what you deserve. Listen, God does what's right. Yes, we're going to undergo persecution. Don't grow weary. Don't become faint in your minds. Commit yourself to God who is the one who judges righteously. He's the one that settles the score at the end of the day. Don't you try to do it. He will. And no one escapes the righteous judgment of God. And the scripture encourages us, even in other passages where it says, you commit yourself to the Lord because he's going to take care of those who have persecuted his children. They will come under his judgment. God's going to defend you. It may not be on your timetable. God, I want defended right now. Get him. Look what he just did. Ah, No, don't be that way. Commit yourself to the Lord. He's the one that settles the score at the end. And believe me, when God settles the score, you want to make sure you're on the right side. Jesus gave us an example. He suffered, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. He didn't curse his enemies. He didn't revile against them when he suffered. He didn't threaten them, but he committed himself to God, the Father who judges righteously. Listen, when, you're, when you suffer, commit yourself to the Lord. Leave it with him. He will take up your case. And he will render a verdict. You don't need to be the judge. He is, and he's a perfect judge. May we encourage ourselves by keeping our eyes on Jesus and considering him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the passage before us today and Lord, may we bear in mind Jesus, keeping him as our goal, looking unto him. And then, Lord, when we undergo persecution, Lord, when we are tending to become weary and faint in our minds, Lord, help us to consider his endurance. Through all that he suffered, Lord, may we be faithful to the end. For the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.